So tonight we're looking at John 4, uh, verses 1 through 42, the woman at the well. And we're going to look at it in three sections. First, Jesus travels through Samaria, verses 1 through 6. Uh, Second, Jesus reveals who he is to the Samaritan woman, verse 7 through 30. And last, Jesus reveals, I'm sorry, Jesus teaches on the harvest, verses 31 through 42. So our narrative opens up with Jesus departing from Judea to go into Galilee. Um, In verses 1 through 6, it says, Therefore, when the Lord knew that the Pharisees had heard that Jesus made and baptized more disciples than John, though Jesus himself did not baptize but his disciples, he left Judea and departed again to Galilee. But he needed to go through Samaria. So he came to a city of Samaria, which is called Sychar, near the plot of ground that Jacob gave to his son Joseph. Now Jacob's well was there. Jesus, therefore, being wearied from his journey, sat thus by the well. It was about the sixth hour. So right off, we see the wisdom of Jesus revealed. Um, He knows that the Pharisees are taking issue with the fact that his disciples are baptizing more um, than John's. Uh, We saw last week, Donna talked about how they went to John and they tried to incite this competition between him and Jesus in John's eyes. But John knew who his ministry was for. Um, And he said that Jesus must increase and he himself must decrease. Um, And even Jesus testifies of himself in the next chapter, in chapter 5. He says in verse 36, um, But I have a greater witness than John's for the works which the Father has given me to finish. The very works that I do bear witness of me that the Father has sent me. Um, We know that Jesus is okay with confrontation because we saw him Um, you know, we saw what he did in the temple we saw him cleanse the temple. So he's not trying to avoid confrontation here. Um, and there would be plenty of confrontation up ahead with the Jewish leaders. Um, but he knows that this is not the time. And so he departs, um, in verse four, it tells us that he needed to go through Samaria. Now, typically Jews avoided, uh, Samaria. There was a long standing hatred between the two groups in second Kings 17, um, During the Assyrian captivity, the Assyrians left a sizable group of Jews in the Samaritan region, and other non-Jewish groups were sent to live in the same area, and these groups intermarried. Um, And what emerged was not only a new ethnic group, but a new religious group. Um, And the Jews who returned from captivity, um, they viewed these Samaritans as an unclean race, um, as half-breeds. Uh, so most Jews, rather than traveling through Samaria, they would take an alternate route to avoid coming into contact with a Samaritan. Uh, they would travel either through Perea um, or they would take the seacoast, um, both of which were substantially longer. Um, and when the Pharisees wanted to insult Jesus in John 8, 48, uh, they say to him, Do we not say rightly that you are a Samaritan and have a demon? Uh, the hatred of the Samaritans by the Jews is recorded for us throughout Scripture. Um, But we see that Jesus has a plan, and it includes Samaria. Um, You know, it says that he needed to go through Samaria. Jesus is not prejudiced, so we see that here in this this passage. Uh, He refuses to be socially restrained, right? He breaks all social bounds to accomplish his work. Um, And we see this throughout the gospel. And second, he has a divine appointment to be kept in Samaria, as we see. He was on a rescue mission. Didn't you just see this as a rescue mission as you went through it? Um, You know, this woman, she's a social outcast that he comes to meet with. She's a sinner. She's broken. Um, But Jesus pursues her, as we'll see. Um, And it's really an account of redemption. 
Throughout this gospel, we see Jesus over and over reach out and go out of his way to save and help the outcast, um, the person who's unloved and broken, um, and the sinner. And this is what he came to do. Uh, and as we move through the account, we see his heart. Yes, for the woman, um, and yes, for mankind, but also for you and me, just the individual. Um, you know, tonight we're looking at a woman who is in need, and Jesus lets her know that he sees her. Um, and while this woman is not a believer, I believe she displays characteristics that we can all fall into. Um, we see that she's unsatisfied, she's bitter, she's waiting, she's lost. Um, she's consumed with the world. Um, and we see, though, even in the middle of this, as she begins to respond to him, that Jesus takes all of these things and he replaces them with hope and fulfillment. And most importantly, he replaces them with salvation. In verse 5 and 6, our text tells us that Jesus was wearied from his journey. Um, we see the humanity of, in, of Jesus, right? Uh, in John 1, it tells us that the word became flesh and dwelt among us. Um, we see that he comes to Jacob's well. It's either at noon or at 6. Uh, commentators debate on what it is. But either way, he's tired from his journey. Um, and so we, we're going to see Jesus reveal who he is to this Samaritan woman in verse 7 through 26. Uh, in verse 7 through 9, it says, A woman of Samaria came to draw water. Jesus said to her, Give me a drink. For his disciples had gone away into the city to buy food. Then the woman of Samaria said to him, How is it that you, being a Jew, ask a drink from me, a Samaritan woman? For Jews have no dealings with Samaritans. Um, so we see that the passage just tells us that she's a woman of Samaria. It doesn't give us a name. Um, but don't we feel like we know who she is? She's not without identity, right? Um, we identify her by, I think, primarily her sin. We know she's a woman with all the husbands. Um, we know she's a social outcast. She comes to the well alone. Typically, women would come draw water together, but she comes at a time when nobody else would be there so that she's alone. She would have, she would get to do it alone and not be kind of confronted with who she is. Um, and it just made me think, what do people identify us as? And, um, it's by what they see us do, um, by what we present. And as we move through, we kind of see uh, this woman of Samaria. She's trying to present herself in a particular way. Um, she's very dismissive with Jesus, as we'll see. Um, she kind of has this tough exterior. But because she's meeting with Jesus, he sees right through it. Um, you know, there's nothing from hidden from him. There's nothing that he can't see through. Um, Psalm 139 Verse 1 through 4 tells us, O Lord, you have searched me and known me. You know my sitting down and my rising up. You understand my thought afar off. You comprehend my path and my lying down and are acquainted with all my ways. For there is not a word on my tongue, but behold, O Lord, you know it all together. And that day he went to tell her, I see you. I see your brokenness. I see your pain. I see your sin. Um, and I see your need. And I still want to be with you. I want to come and I want to take all of those things. So he starts this conversation with her and he says, give me a drink. Um, he says, you know, he asked her for a drink. The fact that he's speaking with a woman is in itself a big deal um, for the social climate of the day. A commentator said the strict rabbis forbade a rabbi to greet a woman in public. Um, 
A rabbi might not even speak to his own wife or daughter or sister in public. Um, so n- not just to mention those things, but also that she's a woman of a bad reputation. Um, and now Jesus is sitting here, a Jew, speaking with a Samaritan. And, um, you know, so her redeeming qualities are few. Um, but Jesus uh, just finished proclaiming in chapter 3, as Donna taught last week, that whosoever believes in him would not perish in John 3.16. And she falls into that whosoever category, right? Jesus doesn't see any of this other stuff. Her race doesn't define her. Um, Her past sins do not define her. Who he says she is defines her. And um, we choose to respond to Jesus as he tells us who we are. Um, and he begins to reveal this truth to her. It's interesting that he asks her to serve him, the first thing that he says to her, right? He says, give me a drink. Um, you know, he could have found a way to get the water himself. One of the things Kathy shared was that, you know, as Jesus performed that first miracle, that he could have just spoken the word and filled those pots. But he was really using the opportunity to deal with the hearts of his disciples. And and I think that's what he's doing here with the woman. He's using the opportunity to deal with her heart. Um, and he asked her to serve him. And, and just thinking about service, how service to God reminds us of what's important. Um, it reminds us of who we are and what we're supposed to be doing and what we're made for. Um, Ephesians 2.10 tells us we are his workmanship created in Christ for good works. Um, Deuteronomy 10:12 says, And now, Israel, what does the Lord your God require of you but to fear the Lord your God, to walk in all his ways, and to love him, to serve the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul? This is who we are supposed to be in him. So in verse 9, we see her surprise, um, right, at, her, at him talking with her. She says, How is it that you, being a Jew, ask a drink from me, a Samaritan woman? For Jews have no dealings with the Samaritans. Um, she recognizes that Jesus is breaking some social norms here. Um, but I imagine that part of her shock was the way that Jesus was speaking with her. Um, I imagine that it was with kindness, um, because that's who Jesus is. Um, and she probably hadn't been spoken to kindly, uh, especially, especially in public for some time. Um, you know, her reputation had isolated her. She had isolated herself. Um, but Jesus draws us with kindness, right? Romans 2 forces that it's the kindness of God that leads us to repentance. Um, and, uh, just thinking about how Jesus reached out to her in that way in kindness and his tone and the way that he deals with her and um, begins to minister to her. It just made me think that, you know, how many of us have uh, non-believing friends and family, um, and it can be discouraging and frustrating as we just see their continual rejection of Jesus because we know that they will be separated from him. And we also know what's offered in Jesus. You know, if, they're, if they choose him, we know the life that they can have in him. So it can be discouraging and frustrating at times, but as we interact with them, we need the power of the Holy Spirit to give us that same kindness that we see Jesus have here. Um, We see that he doesn't deal with her sin first. He deals with her heart, and I think him speaking to her in this way is him really beginning to deal with her heart um, because her sin is a a result of what's happening um, in her heart, right? Um, Romans 10.10 tells us, for with the heart one believes unto righteousness, and with the mouth Confession is made unto salvation. Um, so he's drawing her. He's um, kind of beginning to plead for her heart. So we see Jesus um, begin to do that in verse 10. He says, Jesus answered and said to her, If you knew the gift of God and who it is who says to you, Give me a drink, you would have asked him, and he would have given you living water.
So we're going to take this in parts here. He first says to her, if you knew the gift of God. So he reveals that she is lost um, and is in need of the gift of God, which is salvation. Um, Her life is evidence that she hasn't been transformed by God, um, that she's living in sin. Um, You know, and as believers, when we accept God, there's a transformation that takes place, and it's evident. There should be evidence of a transformation that he's done within us. Um, there should be no habitual sin taking place in the life of a believer. So we see that she she has not accepted that gift of God. In 2 Corinthians 5, 17, it tells us, therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. Old things have passed away. Behold, all things have become new. Next, he says, and who it is who says to you, give me a drink? Um, you would have asked him, He reveals that she doesn't know who she's talking to, that she doesn't know who he is, and she has a deep need in her heart to come to know who he is. Um, Because if she knew who he was, he says that she would have asked him. She she would have turned to him. Um, The scripture tells us that if if we know him, we turn to him. We turn to him in hardship, in difficulty, um, through temptation, uh, through anything that we're dealing with. If we know who he is, we turn to him. And the ways that we get to know him as a believer is through prayer, through the scripture, through uh, spending that time withdrawing with Jesus. Psalm 910 says, And those who know your name will put their trust in you, for you, Lord, have not forsaken those who seek you. So last, he says, um, he tells her, he would have given you living water. If you would have asked, he would have given you living water. He reveals what he has to offer her. Um, He has spiritual water, water that quenches a spiritual thirst, um, eternal life. Jesus uses her basic human need of water um, to show her the need that she has spiritually. Um, to be transformed on the inside, her need of him. In Jeremiah 2.13, it says that uh, God reveals, uh, I'm sorry, God refers to himself as the fountain of living waters. Isaiah 12.3 tells us, Behold, God is my salvation. I will trust and not be afraid. For Yahweh the Lord is my strength and song. He also has become my salvation. Therefore, with joy, you will draw from the wells of salvation. So Jesus tries to make her aware of her spiritual need, um, and we see her response here. In verses 11 and 12, she says, Sir, you have nothing to draw with, and the well is deep. Where then do you get that living water? Are you greater than our father Jacob, who gave us the well and drank from it himself, as well as his sons and his livestock? He's trying to have a spiritual conversation with her. And as we saw with Nicodemus, she's confusing the spiritual with the material. Um, and we also hear her sarcasm. We hear her tone. It's passive aggressive. It's rude. Um, she questions, how can he even get this living water? Is he better than their father, Jacob? Um, and we know the answer. And it doesn't sound like she's actually really asking, right? She's, uh, she assumes that she knows the answer. Um, but we know the answer. Uh, and he continues. He doesn't answer her. Uh, He just continues to pursue her heart. And we see their exchanges kind of like that. She says something, but he doesn't really respond to her questions. He just continues to pursue her heart. And it, um, it just reveals that as we bring things to Jesus. Um, you know, we have these things in our heart that we bring to him every day, uh, things we want to see changed, um, just petitions that we have. And generally we have uh, a specific answer that we're looking for, right? Um, but Jesus answers her with what she needs to hear, and Jesus answers us with what we need to hear. And so I found that encouraging just because this is what Jesus does. He doesn't always answer us with what we want to hear. 
um, in verses 13 through 14, uh, she, he says to her, Whoever drinks of this water will thirst again, but whoever drinks of the water that I shall give him will never thirst. But the water that I shall give him will become in him a fountain of water springing up into everlasting life. So he explains that coming to this well to get physical water will always result in wanting more. Um, but coming to him and receiving who he is and receiving what he has to offer is going to satisfy our spiritual need. This woman had lived a life of searching for something to fill her. Um, she had used relationships for that, um, yet she still came up wanting. She still has a void, um, and it could only be filled by God. Um, and that's because there's a God-shaped hole in all of us. We all have this deep need for God, and he's the only one who can fill it. And even after we accept the gift of God, even as believers, we can find ourselves kind of fall into patterns of dissatisfaction with our life, um, you know, with what we don't have, with what we want, and discontentment with what we do have. Um, so it's it's a warning to us. Um, and, and not that there's anything wrong with wanting stuff or needing stuff, but it's keeping that stuff in its right place and keeping Jesus as the priority. Um, Chuck Smith, in his commentary, Wisdom for Today, about this passage, um, says this. The thirst in man is a thirst for God. If you drink the water from the wells of this life, you will thirst again. It would be wise to write that over each of your ambitions. Drink of that water, but you will thirst again. Write that over every material thing you hope to possess. The new car, new home, boat, whatever. Write that over every goal of your life. Achieve it, but you will surely thirst again. He asks, are you thirsty today? Forget the world's water. Drink deeply of the living water and find the satisfaction you long for. Psalm 1715 says, I shall be satisfied when I awake in your likeness. Psalm 63.1 says, my soul thirsts for you. My soul, my flesh longs for you in a dry and thirsty land. So our prayer should be that God would give us a heart and mind to find our heart satisfaction in the things of God um, over every desire that we may have. In verse 15, we see that she's still struggling um, to understand. She says, Sir, give me this water that I may not thirst, nor come here to draw. So she's only seen what he's saying um, as it could benefit her outwardly um, so that she wouldn't have to physically come draw water. Um, if he could make it that, such that she didn't have to come draw water, she wouldn't be having to avoid people. She wouldn't have to be confronted with her sin, potentially. She's looking for a quick fix to kind of cover her sin here. Um, but Jesus isn't about that. He likes to deal with our sin so that we can abandon it. And, and we see him kind of head on begin to do that with her. Um, so we see a shift in the dialogue in verse 16. Jesus says to her, go call your husband and come here. The woman answered and said, I have no husband. So Jesus said to her, you have said, well, I have no husband. Um, and I thought, why did Jesus tell her to go call her husband knowing that she didn't have a husband? Um, you know, was he trying to embarrass, he, embarrass her? Um, we see she answers correctly. She says, I have no husband. Um, it wasn't that. It wasn't that Jesus wanted to embarrass her. That's not who he is. He's not wanting us to feel bad. He didn't want her to feel bad. But in order to have fellowship with God, there needs to be a confession of sin. Um, and so unless we acknowledge sin in our life, it can't be abandoned. And I think this is what he was trying to get her to do to confess um, 
what was going on and um, bring her into that fellowship. In Proverbs 28:13, it says, He who covers his sins will not prosper, but whoever confesses and forsakes them will have mercy. 1 John 1, 8 through 10 tells us if we say that we have no sin, we deceive ourselves and the truth is not in us. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Unrighteousness. If we say that we have not sinned, we make him a liar and his word is not in us. So Jesus presents us with our sin, not to condemn us, but to save us because he loves us and wants to be with us. Um, but sin separates us from him. So he pursues us and presents us with our sin so that we can deal with it. He gives us checks and he gives us every opportunity to respond to him. Um, and it's because of that great love that he has for us. Um, John three seventeen says, for God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world but that the world through him might be saved. So in verse 17, the woman, she says, I have no husband. I think this is the shortest answer that she has yet up to this point. Did you guys notice that? You know, he says what he says, and she says, I have no husband. Like, she's trying to shut the conversation down. Um, My husband taught my son, my three-year-old son, how to say, um, I'm doing awesome. So when you ask him, Oliver, how are you doing? He says, I'm doing awesome. Well, a few days ago, I, he was doing something he shouldn't be doing, and this is like a regular occurrence, but I go over to him, I see him doing something, I go over there, I'm like, hey, he's all, I'm doing awesome. <laughs> and he's just trying to avoid, you know, he's like, nope, nothing to see here, right? Um, and this is kind of what I saw here with her. She says, I have no husband. She's just trying to, let's not talk about this. Um, Romans 3.19 says, Now we know that whatever the law says, it says to those who are under the law, that every mouth may be stopped and all the world may become guilty before God. So we can hear her conviction. We, we hear the guilt there with her. Um, so he says, You have said, Well, you have no husband, for you have had five husbands, and the one, who, the one whom you now have is not your husband, and that you spoke truly. So Jesus lets her know that he's aware of her attitude toward marriage as well. I think um, for John to know how many husbands she's had, and now she's living with a man who is not her husband, um, maybe in adultery, certainly in fornication, it reveals her character. Um, in the world, marriage is disposable. It's self-centered. Um, when the marriage no longer satisfies or becomes too hard to work on, it gets abandoned, um, discarded, and there's no value placed on working on it. But in the Lord... Um, Um, Our goal is to be pleasing to God, first and foremost. Um, And so we work on it, and we leave Jesus as the center um, because we're no longer trying to please ourselves. Um, But we need the mind of Christ to do that. Um, We need the mind of Christ to operate like this because that's not our natural bend uh, to do that, and and we need his help. Um, So we see she quickly changes the subject. In verse 19 through 20, it says, The woman said to him, Sir, I perceive that you are a prophet. Spurgeon said it would have been better if she perceived that she was a sinner. (laughs) She says in verse 20, Our fathers worshipped on this mountain, and you Jews say that in Jerusalem is the place where one ought to worship. It's always easier to divert the attention away from sin, um, and it's easier to hide sin with religion, and I think we see her do both. Um, she begins to tell him that she, what she knows about religion because she perceives that he's a prophet. She perceives that he's a prophet because he's telling her things about herself that he shouldn't know. Um, but ignoring sin, hiding behind good works and religion, these things don't make sin go away. There needs to be an acknowledgement um, of sin and a turning away from it in order to be right with God. 
Um, the Samaritans, after the Assyrian captivity, started their own place of worship on Mount Gerizim, which is right across from where she's having this conversation with Jesus. Um, they assert that Abraham had offered Isaac there. They affirm that on that mountain, um, Solomon had built the temple um, and that this was the rightful place to worship. Um, but Jesus isn't going to debate about worship with her and the location of worship. He's trying to save her. Um, he wants to have a relationship with her. So again, he doesn't answer her directly, but he does answer her. He says, woman, believe me, the hour is coming while you are, when you will neither on this mountain nor in Jerusalem worship the father. Uh, he says the hour is coming. He's referring to his death and resurrection. Um, what Jesus would accomplish on the cross would remove any idea that worship needed to be in a specific building or in a, or a specific place, um, but rather what was going on in the heart of a believer. Um, in 70 AD, Jerusalem, um, along with the temple, would be destroyed. So it, it wasn't about a place. Um, in verse 22, he says, You worship what you do not know. We know what we worship for salvation is of the Jews. He wanted to make it very clear that what he calls worship and what she calls worship were two very different things. Um, he wasn't going to associate the worship that came from the Samaritans with the worship that came from the Jews. And this is important because sometimes people can pick and choose from different religions and call it a relationship with God, that they have this connection with God through these different things. And that doesn't work. Um, John fourteen six says, Jesus said to him, I am the way the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. So it's not a combination of things. Um, you can't exclude things. There's only one way. Um, the Samaritans only recognized the Torah, the first five books of the law. Um, but the Jews had the full revelation and recognized the full revelation of God. Um, and it was first given to them and then to the rest of the world. Uh, Romans 1.16 tells us, For I am not ashamed of the gospel of Christ, for it is the power of God to salvation for everyone who believes, for the Jew first and also for the Greek. So in verse 23 through 24, he says, again, the hour is coming, testifying of his death and resurrection. And he says, and now is when the true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and truth. For the Father is seeking such to worship him. God is spirit, and those who worship him must worship in spirit and truth. He says the true worshipers, not the ones in a specific building, not the ones of a specific race, um, but those who had given their lives to him, who were abiding in him, the ones who had been transformed by God uh, on the inside. Those are the ones the Father is looking to have worship him. Um, he was not looking for religion. God isn't looking for religion. He's looking for true worshipers, those who have been changed by him. He says worship in spirit. That's what's going on inside of our hearts. Um, he says worship in truth. Um, that's the way we're instructed to worship through the word of God, the full inspired word of God, um, not just an appearance of worship, not through works, not through religion. Philippians 3.3 says, For we are the circumcision who worship God, God in the spirit, rejoice in Christ Jesus, and have no confidence in the flesh. So he cuts, Jesus in this conversation is cutting right to the core of her issues, that she is striving in the flesh, that she has been living for herself, um, She's been walking in the flesh. She's in bondage to sin. And I imagine that she's exhausted. Um, first of all, she's had five husbands. So, you know, that doesn't sound tiring. I don't know it does. Um, but this is years of dissatisfaction. Um, this is years of disappointment, years of needing, years of being separated from God, striving in the flesh, living for herself, and coming up wanting, nothing satisfying. Um, 
There's a saying, it's a sin will take you farther than you want to go, keep you longer than you want to stay, and cost you more than you want to pay. And I imagine that this summed her up pretty well at this point. Um, she continues with Jesus and says, I know that the Messiah is coming, who is called Christ. When he comes, he will tell us all things. And Jesus says to her, I who speak to you am he. The Samaritans knew that the Messiah was coming, um, but up to this point, that information, that knowledge had no transforming work in her life or in her heart. But she knew that the Messiah, a Savior, would come and that he would have all of the answers. Um, she says, he will tell us all things. Um, and I think that's so interesting because she needed some answers. She'd been waiting for some answers, and I think we're all we all want some answers sometimes, and Jesus is saying, I am the one with the answers. I am the one with the right things to say that will satisfy you. In John 6, 68, Simon Peter answers the Lord and says to him, Lord, to whom shall we go? You have the words of eternal life. So for the first time, even before we see Jesus um, verbalize this to his disciples, um, he says to her, this woman, a broken sinner, dissatisfied soul, he says to her, I who speak to him, he, I am the Messiah. I am the one you've been waiting for, Yahweh, the Lord. Um, this is who's meeting with you. This is who has been having this long conversation with you. Um, I desire to meet with you. I desire to have fellowship with you. Um, what a life-altering, life-giving moment for this woman. Um, never to be the same. Completely transforms her. Um, He's the one that she was waiting for. He's the one, even though she didn't know it, he was the one that she was waiting for. Um, and he wanted to give her that living water, that gift of God that would change her forever. Um, and he took the time and went out of his way to do that. And that's what he does with us. Um, in verse 27 through 30, we see the impact her time with Jesus would, ha would have. Um, it says, just then his disciples returned and were surprised to find him talking with a woman. But no one asked, what do you want or why are you talking with her? Then leaving her water jar, the woman went back to the town and said to the people, come see a man who told me everything I ever did. Could this be the Messiah? They came out of the town and made their way toward him. <clears throat> Jesus knew when the disciples would return. Um, you know, it says that just then his disciples returned. So right after he says, I who speak to you am he, he reveals himself to this woman. It says just then his disciples returned. We see that he perfectly orchestrated this intimate time with this woman. He wanted to have this conversation. It would be just her and him. He uses her situation that she would be at the well alone. He uses her circumstance um, to minister to her. And this is what Jesus does. He uses our situations and he wants to meet us right in the middle of where we're at to minister to us and speak to us um, about the issues of our life. Um, we see the disciples, they're surprised, right, to see Jesus speaking with a woman um, because they're aware of the social, you know, norms of the day. But nobody says to him, what are you doing? Because they respected Jesus, and they knew that he had a plan and um, that he had a purpose for the things that he was doing. I like that John notes that she leaves her water pot, such a subtle detail, but she knew she would be returning to that spot, right? Um, she was going to need more. Um, when Jesus reveals himself to us, it puts this craving within, within us for more. Um, you know, it puts a determination in us to return to that spot next to him. Um, 
you know, we accept Jesus and he gives us eternal life, but it doesn't stop there, right? We need a continual taking in of him, a daily coming to him so that we could have that satisfaction. And um, otherwise we will turn up wanting, um, you know, we need to have that relationship relationship with him where we're abiding and walking with him daily. Um, and so we see the fire of a new believer here. Um, she can't help but go tell the people in the town about Jesus and to come and see him. Um, the people that she had been outcasted from, um, she says, come see a man who told me all the things I ever did. Um, and we can hear in her voice, she doesn't leave Jesus' side feeling condemned um, or embarrassed. Um, she says, come see the man who told me all the things I ever did. She even notes her, you know, sin in there, but she knew that it no longer defined her. Um, it was no longer the thing that held her. She's eager to have them come see because Jesus set her free from that bondage of sin. Um, you know, and we see there's a recognizable change in her life at this point. Um, Psalm 40 verse one through three tells us he also brought me up out of a horrible pit out of the miry clay and set my feet upon a rock and establish my steps. He has put a new song in my mouth. Praise to our God. Many will see it and fear and will trust in the Lord. So they come and see. They came out of the town in verse 30 and made their way to him. And so we see Jesus teach on the harvest um, in verses 31 through 42. It says, meanwhile, while his disciples, I'm sorry, meanwhile, his disciples urged him, Rabbi, eat something. But he said to them, I have food to eat that you know nothing about. Then his disciples said to each other, could someone have brought him food? My food, said Jesus, is to do the will of him who sent me and to finish his work. So we see similarities between this conversation with his disciples that he just had with a woman. Um, he wants to reveal to them that their focus is material and his focus is spiritual um, to do the will of the Father. Um, you know, even sometimes when we do ministry uh, and we get kind of caught up in uh, serving and it's so exciting, we're like, and we've, we can forget to eat. And people are like, oh, did you eat? And you're like, oh, my gosh, I forgot to eat. This is so cool. We get, like, wrapped up in it. And because it's exciting and we get to be part of it, doing ministry, doing the will of God, finding out what that is, that is what is truly satisfying. And that's where we're sustained. Um, you know, just asking God, God, how can I serve you? How can my life be a benefit? Um, and even as we meet for Thanksgiving with our families, how can we bless our families? Um, how can we be part of his will to them? And especially to those who don't believe, um, how could we be an encouragement? Um, you know, and so he's trying to get this message across to his disciples that they know nothing about what he's doing, but he's trying to bring them over to have that same mindset. Um, because with physical food, we will hunger again. Um, but true filling is to do the will of God. Psalm 40 verse eight says, I delight to do your will. Oh my God. And your law is with, is within my heart. So he tells them what to do in verse 35 through 38. He says, don't you have a saying? It's still four months until harvest. I tell you, open your eyes and look at the fields. They are ripe for harvest. Even now, the one who reaps draws a wage and harvests a crop for eternal life so that the sower and the reaper may be glad together. Thus the saying, one sows and another reaps is true. I sent you to reap what you have not worked for. Others have done the hard work and you have reaped the benefits of their labor. He's saying, don't wait for the perfect moment. Um, you know, don't wait for the perfect moment to share the gospel or to do his work. The time is now. At this point, the people from the city would be returning with a woman who had gone to them and told them um, that Jesus was at this well. Um, 
And he says to his disciples, uh, open your eyes. He's telling them to look. Uh, this requires us to be alert. He's telling us to be paying attention. Look for the opportunity. Uh, expect the opportunity. Um, and sometimes that it means stepping out of our comfort zones to make ourselves available to do the work of God. Um, and there's never going to be a perfect moment. You know, we can find excuses uh, to not witness and uh, because it takes going out of our way. It, it costs time and it costs energy. Um, but he tells them that their work and the harvest would be rewarded. Uh, Galatians 6, 9 says, And let us not grow weary while doing good, for in due season we shall reap if we do not lose heart. The work would reap eternal benefits. Um, the work we do in our homes, in our workplaces, um, wherever we're at, the greatest work that we're doing in those places is giving Jesus, is evangelizing, is setting that example. Um, that's the greatest, most valuable thing that we can do with our lives. That's the work that's going to stick. Um, and we all have a part uh, in the body of Christ, and we all have a part in that work. And it says everyone rejoices um, as they do that work. First uh, Corinthians 3, 6 through 9 says, I, Paul, planted Apollos water, but God gave the increase. Uh, so then neither he who plants is anything nor he who waters, but God who gives the increase. And in verse 9, it says, for we are God's fellow workers. Um, he told them that the others had already done hard work, the hard work for them. Um, at this point, John is in uh, near Salem. Um, so maybe he had passed through Samaria. Um, the prophets, we know the woman is out now evangelizing. Jesus is there. Um, whatever the case, the people were ready to hear the truth. And, um, what's interesting is that in the eyes of the Jews, the Samaritans were a lost cause, right? Um, they had rejected the ways of God. Um, but Jesus' claim over it was the harvest is ready. Um, and it just made me think there are so many people in our lives who we can look at and think, that's not going to happen. You know, and we kind of throw in the towel in our hearts. And um, we never know what God is doing in the heart of someone um, to those we're witnessing to. So we do his work and we leave the increase to him. Um, he just wants us to be faithful um, through our witness and through prayer. Psalm 126.6 says, He who continually goes forth weeping, bearing seed for sowing, shall doubtless come again with rejoicing, bringing his sheaves with him. So just as the Father is seeking true worshipers, he's seeking co-labors in the harvest. In verse 39 through 42, the Samaritans believe in it, in him. It says, many of the Samaritans from that town believed in him because of the woman's testimony. He told me everything I ever did. So when the Samaritans came to him, they urged him to stay with them, and he stayed two days. And because of his words, many more became believers. They said to the woman, we no longer believe just because of what you said. Now we have heard for ourselves, and we know that this man really is the Savior of the world. This woman's testimony brought many to God. Her story, as we have it here in John's account, how many more have come because they see themselves in her? They relate. We relate. Um, we want that conversation with Jesus. We want that gift. We want that living water. Um, so they urge Jesus to stay with them, and he does. He stays two days. Um, and I think just over and over through this account, we have seen Jesus' heart, that he wants to be with individuals. Um, he wants to be with us. He wants to save us, uh, to spend time with us, um, to teach us and to mature our faith. And this is what he did over those two days. He fed them, and they drew from him. 
Um, and we see that it's because of him that they believe. It says that he gives the increase. Um, they proclaim Jesus as the Savior of the world, the Messiah, the Son of God, not just to the Jews, not just to the Samaritans, but to the world. Um, and the message is to all. And his message is to the world, but it begins with us individually. Um, and as we've seen, Jesus is not prejudiced. He went right through Samaria. Um, he came to call sinners. He's looking to do the will of the Father um, because of his great love. And we just see his heart here and this heart that he has. It's for us, um, his children. And it's not to condemn us. He doesn't want to make us feel condemned over our sin, but he wants to save us and pull us out of that sin so that he can have fellowship with us. Um, You know, the story starts with... We see Jesus' humanity sitting at the well. We see him be a witness even when he's tired, um, you know, and that's what he's called us to do. Even when we're tired, even when we don't feel like it, he witnesses to this woman, and the amazing fruit that comes from this transformed life is amazing. Um, Jesus was still, even though we see his humanity, he was still the all-powerful Savior of the world, speaking life to her. Um, Their interaction was a source of redemption and transformation in her life that she couldn't have received from anywhere else. Nothing else she could have uh, tried to fill herself with would give her this saving. Her heart had been rescued from a life of sin, and in turn she was made useful in the hands of God. Um, because she surrendered to him. And as we surrender our desires and our ambitions and our sin uh, at the feet of Jesus, he redeems us and he uses us for his glory and his purpose. First John four fourteen through 16 says, And we have seen and testify that the Father has sent the Son as Savior of the world. Whoever confesses that Jesus is the Son of God, God abides in him and he in God. And we have known and believed the love that God has for us. God is love, and he who abides in love abides in God and God in him.